Haggai 2, 10 to 23. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered back and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of those, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, but there were 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, but there were 20. I struck you in all of the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider... Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on this text uh, here in front of us today. Uh, thanks, Ashley, for reading it. Uh, many of you are probably aware uh, of the legend of King Midas and the uh, so-called Midas Touch. The Coles notes for this legend, this myth, if, if you don't know it, is that King Midas, this king in Greece, had hosted a traveler um, and, and had showed him great favor. Uh, and and the, the traveler was actually a teacher of one of the Greek gods, uh, Dionysius. Anyways, Dionysius discovers Midas has been generous. He's like, I'll grant you one wish. You can ask me for anything you want. And Midas, who loved gold, uh, he asks for the power that anything he touches be turned to gold. And Dionysius, this god Dionysius, grants his wish. And of course, Midas uses his power. He's like standing near a tree and he touches a twig and it turns to gold and then touches a rock and it turns to gold. And then he returns home and he touches every rose in his garden and, and, you know, and so on. Now, now, it turns out that the Midas touch has other consequences because he accidentally turns his daughter to gold. And there's, there's other problems with the Midas touch and he, and he ends up regretting his decision. But this morning, I want to talk about the Midas touch itself. The touch that can turn the common and the mundane into items of priceless beauty. Now, the reason the Midas touch is a myth is because we know the world doesn't work like that. <laughs> we know actually the world works in precisely the opposite way. The beauty doesn't spread. Pricelessness doesn't spread. Uh, dirtiness does. Spotlessness, it doesn't, doesn't convey itself to other things. The priceless doesn't infect things and make them priceless as well. 
Now, physics people will tell you this is some law of thermodynamics, you know, blah, blah, blah. But let me give you a different illustration. Think of a small child eating spaghetti with their hands, okay? Think like toddler level in a high chair or whatever. Uh, and, and the spaghetti is, of course, you know, partly in their mouth, but it's on their head and in their hair and on, on the floor. Like, it's, it's all over the place. Now, if that messy toddler were to get up from their high chair and, horror of horrors, begin to wander the house... All the parents are just shuddering inside. Uh, it, it would be a disaster, right? Because they would spread the dirtiness from the spaghetti to everything they touch. It'd be on the walls. It'd be on the couch. It'd be on a pillowcase upstairs somehow or whatever. Why? Because dirtiness changes what it touches to make that thing dirty as well. That's how it works. And what the world would be like if cleanliness worked in the same way. Imagine if your hands were clean, that you could go around and everything you touched with your clean hands could you spread cleanness to that. Now, that's a wish maybe worth asking for. But that's not the way the world works. Dirtiness spreads, cleanliness doesn't. Or to take a less concrete example than our, than our toddler, uh, imagine a person who has a spotless reputation, known for being honest and upright and trustworthy. One terrible act by that person can ruin that reputation, maybe for life even. But the opposite is not exactly true. If you have a truly terrible person, greedy, malicious, selfish, and we know whatever terrible means to you, then one shining, beautiful act does not change their reputation. It may nudge it slightly, like, okay, I guess they're not all bad, but they're still, you know, 99% bad. But terribleness spreads. Beauty does not. That seems to be the way of things. Now, why are we talking about all this? Well, because Haggai's got an important question that needs answering. And the question is sort of this, to put it in my own words. How can a dirty people, full of sin, full of spiritual dirtiness, how can they make, ever make something that's good and right? How can these people be entrusted to build a temple that will inherently be kind of stained because of their sin? Like a group of spaghetti-eating toddlers, how were they ever going to build something clean? This is the question Haggai is going to both ask and answer today. So I have two parts to today's message as we work our way through this text. Part one, it's a long title, but I'm calling it a question and the question beneath the question. Use that three times in that sentence. And then part two is just simply the last word. So first, a question and the question beneath the question. Now, just to catch you up very briefly on Haggai, Haggai's here to encourage, to command the people to rebuild the temple. They didn't respond. God had sent them curses. He'd withheld blessings. Uh, they didn't do anything. They didn't get it. So God sent Haggai to call them to, be, to repent and rebuild the temple. And in contrast to most prophets, they listened to him. They obeyed and they began to work. But then last week we talked about a month in, you know, they, they, they began to quit just like we all do with our, with our diets and our, our New Year's resolutions. And their energy flagged and they got discouraged. And so God encourages them. He promised them his very presence, the future glory that will come to the temple. And now verse 10 opens approximately two months after that message of encouragement. So the, the basic timeline is Haggai showed up and preached. A month later, he showed up with a message of encouragement. Two months later, he now shows up with this message. And the people have been busy at work. They're laying bricks, chopping trees, doing all the things. But this time, instead of going to the governor, instead of going to the high priest, or even the people with the message, God instructs Haggai, go ask the priests a question. Now, that's a pretty common practice in that day. There weren't many written copies of the law, and illiteracy was likely quite high, maybe even extremely high. You couldn't easily look something up. Do you have a question? You know, you're, not, you're not Googling it or whatever. If you want to know what the law says about something, you'd go ask either your local priest or go to the temple and ask a bunch of priests. 
you know, what, what you wanted to know. So, for instance, if your, if your bull maimed someone, that like gored someone out, out in the yard or whatever, well, what, what do I owe that person? What's, what's the proper payment for them? Or if, or if I sinned in this way or that way, what's the appropriate sacrifice? And the priest would tell you, this is what the law says. And if it was a tricky case, they might just give you their interpretation. Well, the law doesn't speak to it exactly, but here's sort of an interpretation. So Haggai goes and he has two questions for them. The first question is if you're carrying holy meat in the fold of your garment and then later place something else into that fold, and he's like, bread, stew, wine, oil. I don't know how you put stew in the fold of a garment, but does that food become holy as well? And the idea here basically is is that people in those days, they had garments that had a kind of sling built in. They'd use it to carry stuff around. Think of it, maybe like one of those those baby carrier sling things or whatever. And then, then so sometimes Israelites would go and they'd make a peace offering at the temple. They'd sacrifice an animal, but they got to keep part of the meat. So they'd take that sacrifice, they'd put it in the sling, bring it back home to the family. And Leviticus 6 tells us that when such a sacrifice was made, the meat they offered was made holy, and the garment used to carry the meat was also made holy. So what Haggai's asking, if this all sounds like, I don't know what you're talking about, he's asking, how far does holiness transfer? We know it transfers from the meat to the garment, but does that garment now, does it transmit holiness? And the priests say, no, no it doesn't. Garment is where it stops, sort of like, you know, one level down, that's as far as you get. But then Haggai asks a second question, He said, what if someone's unclean because they've touched a dead body? And unclean, we're talking ceremonially, you know, spiritually. In Numbers 19, God told his people, if you touch it, you interact with a dead body, you become unclean for seven days. And so, Haggai's second question is, can a person made unclean by the dead body, can they transmit their uncleanness to anything else? And in this case, the priest answer, right there at the end of verse 13, is yes. So when we put these two questions together, the lesson Haggai is teaching is that according to the law, defilement, uncleanness, it's more contagious than holiness. It can spread past the first layer. Holiness stops, you know, one layer down, but defilement doesn't. Now you're wondering, like, what's, what's his point? Why, why is he asking these questions about the law? Well, if you look at, look at verse 14, Haggai says, so it is which means he's making a conclusion. So it is with this people, this nation before me, declares the Lord. So with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. So what Haggai's doing is he's sort of making a point with the law that there's a problem with the rebuilding of the temple. And there's actually kind of two problems. But the first problem is that people are making sacrifices to God. Ezra 3, which kind of records some of the same time, talks about they were making sacrifices, but they were unclean when they went to sacrifices, to make sacrifices, and therefore they tainted them. That's what Haggai means when he says what they offer there, that's a sacrifice, what they offer there is unclean. But in addition, a second problem is that the rebuilding of the temple, the whole project is tainted. Haggai told us every work of their hands is unclean. If the people were unclean, how could they ever make a place that was pure and holy? The temple is supposed to be the place where you get pure and holy, you get clean. How can it be built by an unclean people? Perhaps you see the problem. It's like trying to brush your teeth while eating Oreos. Like, you you can brush as long as you want, you can keep adding in toothpaste, throw some mouthwash in there or whatever, but but if you keep eating Oreos while you brush your teeth, like, it's not going to matter. Your teeth are not going to get clean. And this is sort of why, by the way, if you are a Christian, uh, you can't use uh, improper means to justify good ends. 
Perhaps you've heard it argued, maybe you argued it yourself, as long as proper ends are achieved, it doesn't really matter how we get there, we can justify anything we do along the way. Maybe some of you, you've listened to the the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that podcast. This comes up on a number of occasions where people inside that church thought, well, if God is blessing it, if the ends are good, then I guess the way that we go about the work is acceptable. But of course, in that case and in many other cases, that's not true. The ends did not justify the means. The way you go about the work is inseparable. And God's telling the people here, the rebuilding of the temple, if it's done by unclean people, it will mess everything up. Defilement is too contagious. It'll transmit itself to the temple. Unclean people cannot make a holy temple. And then in verse 15, Haggai kind of reminds them of what life was like before they started to rebuild the temple. Now, this is a rehearsal of things he said back in chapter 1. That before the rebuilding had started, God had cursed the people of Israel. There wasn't enough wine. There wasn't enough grain. There wasn't enough oil. Harvests weren't good. There was blight and mildew and hail. These are, these are, are curses on the work that the people were doing. But from now on, from the day Haggai is speaking, because they've been laying stone upon stone, God invites the people to consider what their actions will produce. He said, look, you may not see it now, there's still no, no, no fruit on the trees, but from this point on, he says in verse 19, now that the foundation of the temple has been laid, God will bless them. And we understand that, that material blessings are symbolic of the spiritual blessing of God. So in this passage, God is promising good harvests, you know, better, you know, more wine, more oil, abundant provisions, but more importantly, he's promising to return to relationship with them. Now, let's just think for a moment about this whole section Because on my first reading of this chapter, and even second or third, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. It seemed like Haggai had skipped a part. Here's how I think it sets up. The the first lesson was, defilement spreads further and faster than holiness. Okay, got that? Part two, this therefore contaminates their sacrifices, contaminates the whole rebuilding of the temple. But then part three, the foundation of the temple has been laid, and it appears that God has accepted it because he promises to bless them. And I think what confused me was it seems like there should be something in between part two and part three. How did unclean people produce a clean temple? I mean, it's not even done. Uh, All they've done is clear the rubble and finish the foundation, yet God has chosen to bless them. Their obedience isn't finished. It's only begun in some ways. So logically, in my head, it didn't add up. In fact, in the ESV translation, we we didn't put it in the bulletin, but they titled this section, Blessings for Defiled People. And we don't see it spelled out. How do they get from defiled temple to a clean temple? And I think the answer is this. That human logic fails when it comes to God. (laughs) So our logic doesn't work because maybe it's not supposed to. Over and over what the scriptures tell us is God is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness, which are not always logical actions. God's traveling outside of karma. He doesn't give what sins deserve, but when Israel showed obedience and desire for him, he took their unclean offering and accepted it. He blessed what was defiled. He made clean what was unclean. And lest you think this is just Israel, I've noticed a pattern in my own life where I tend to mess things up. Anyone else? Like, despite my best efforts, I'm, I'm lurching around and I'm, I'm damaging things, myself, my relationships, things that are dear to me. That I muddle forward in life knowing that at the bottom I'm kind of like a spaghetti splattered toddler. That I'm doing my best and I sincerely want to help, but I keep dirtying things. Maybe if you're a Christian you sense this as well. That you you have the beginnings of obedience. 
Your, your heart has changed. You do want to please God. You do want to love your neighbors near and far, but you keep just messing up. And maybe you're wondering, how do I make a clean life with dirty hands? See, it sounds like Israel has a problem, but really, we all have a problem. <laughs> we all do. Because Romans 3 says, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Everyone's fallen short. Everyone's lost hope. Everyone's like a lost little sheep who's wandered off. And we're living in this world that's a collage of all our mistakes. And we lament it, and we, and we get sad about it, and, and we think, well, how did it get this way? And sure, there's some element of suffering, but the answer mostly is us. We did it. See, we look around at our lives wondering, why is my marriage not, as, not the way it could be or it should be? Why is my relationship with my children or my parents or my friends, you know, not that great? Well, the, well, the answer is, is it's us. Where can we get clean hands and pure hearts so we stop defiling the things that we touch? See, what Israel didn't know or couldn't have known, really, is why God would be so gracious to them. They knew that he was gracious. They knew that he had taken their defiled temple and made it pure. They knew that God was returning to them in relationship, but I don't think they knew why. But we know. See, at Christmas, we sing joy to the world. And maybe we should make it a year-round hymn, because only the first verse is really Christmassy. But the third verse, if you know it, it goes like this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. You know, far as, far as, far as the curse is found. See, up until Jesus came, according to the law, defilement spread further and faster than holiness did. And when unclean people, when they touched things, they infected those things with uncleanness. And holiness, righteousness, purity, it could never catch up until Jesus. And in the birth, in the life, the death, the resurrection, we understand now what Isaac Watts wrote of, that Jesus reversed the normal course of things, and now blessings and purity and cleanness, now it's outrunning the sin and the muck and the defilement. That wherever sin increases, now grace increases all the more. That's what, Paul, that's what the Apostle Paul tells us. There's no sin too deep, there's nothing too dark, nothing too ugly, that grace can't swallow it up. The reason a defiled people can be blessed is because God takes their tepid repentance and ours and dumps grace onto it. So God's now at work in the world, making his grace flow to all the places that have been cursed. I mean, he makes defiled temples clean, but more than that, he makes unclean people, like you and I, pure and holy in his sight. God can take the messes we continue to make and redeem them by his grace. But we need to move to part two, the last word. If you look at verse 20, it says, the word of the Lord comes to Haggai a second time, but it's on the same day, 24th day of the ninth month. And this specifically is a word for Zerubbabel, the governor of Israel. And this is a promise from God that he's going to shake everything. He's going to shake the heavens. He's going to shake the earth. He's going to overthrow thrones and kingdoms. Nothing, no place will be exempt. Armies will be destroyed. Horses and riders taken down by each other. Now, we heard about the shaking before. Last week, we talked about it. In some ways, this is a repeat of that promise, but it's a couple of new details. First is Haggai's evoking language from Israel's history. The reference to overthrowing chariots and riders, that's evoking memories of, of the Egyptians at the Red Sea when God miraculously intervened to save his people there, you know, overthrowing the chariots and the horsemen of Egypt. The reference to horses and riders being taken down by the swords of, of their brothers uh, evokes memories of the defeat of the Midianites 
when Gideon had just you know, a few hundred men and defeated an army of thousands because God caused them to turn on each other you know, in the dark. See, what God is promising Zerubbabel is that his intervention in the days to come will be reminiscent of all the great victories of the past. It'll be like that again. When God shows up, it'll feel like these days that he had learned you know, in his history books. And on the day of the shaking, God promises in verse 23 to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring because he's been chosen by God. Now, what does, that, what does that mean exactly? Again, we discussed shaking at length last week. You can go look it up. But basically, shaking generally refers to God showing up in person. And, and the sort of academic theological word we use here is theophany, which means God appearance, God showing up. And what's going to happen? Well, Zerubbabel will no longer be a governor, but he'll be a king. And there will be a kingdom that will eclipse and overthrow all other human kingdoms. See, Zerubbabel is in the line of David. He's an inheritor of the promises of God. But many people of that time had thought the promises that God made to David, you know, thousands of years before, um, had ceased. In Jeremiah 22, verse 24, um, Israel has failed to heal, yeah, heed God's voice. They got invaded by Babylon, destroyed. God says, even though Jeconiah, who was the king at that point, even though Jeconiah is the signet ring on my right hand, I will tear him off. And then Jeremiah comments, none of Jeconiah's offspring will sit on the throne of David and rule again in Judah. But Jeconiah is Zerubbabel's grandfather. So even though Israel has forsaken God and in, God, and in Jeremiah, God says, look, I've torn off the ring, I've thrown it away. Now he's promising, I'm going to put it back on. So what do we make of all this? It just means the promises are being restored. The kingdom is being reborn. Things are being renewed. But interestingly, not yet. It'll take more than 500 years for this promise to be fulfilled. The people will wait a long, long time for this king in the line of Zerubbabel, in the line of David, one of these great, great grandsons to be, to be born. See, the Persians will rise and fall. The Greeks will rise and fall. Rome will rise, at least when, when the prophecy is fulfilled. And through the long years, the people will look back to this foundation day when the foundation of the temple was completed and God promised that he would be with them to bless them and to choose them. They can look back and see, this is what God has done for us, and they can hope in the future that this great shaking will one day take place, that God will show up. And if you look, of course, in Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, verse 12, who do we find? Our man Zerubbabel. He's there. He's 12 generations removed, but he's in the line. And the shaking of all human kingdoms, the overthrow of every other king, it's going to come to pass when the king of kings, Jesus Christ, is laid in the manger. Now, what about us? What's our foundation day? What is the pivotal point upon which our history turns? Well, if you are a Christian, it's the same day the Israelites look forward to, we look back to it, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can look back at him and understand the contamination of sin. It's been dealt with. We know that we have been purified. We can draw near to God and worship. In fact, in Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul tells us, in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's kind of reiteration of the promises of Haggai, that God is with us to bless us. We aren't just brought to neutral, but but that God, by his grace, through Christ, is dumping blessing onto his people. Now look, does that erase all sin in the present? No, of course not. Does it mean that we stop messing things up? No, of course not. Does it guarantee physical blessings? No. But it's true all the same. Uh, This past week, 
I got a difficult email. Now, the person who sent it, it's not any of you. They're not here. You know, they, they don't go to our church. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm almost like 99.9% sure they're not listening to this. So you don't have to worry if I'm talking about you. I'm very, very likely not. Um, and I'm not even sure if the person who sent me this email knew that it was difficult for me. But I, I'd sent them a question or a kind of a, a request, and they responded to it. And the way they wrote, uh, there were some things implied in their email that just made me so mad. I felt hurt. I felt angry. I just had this reaction, like, inside, you know, in my, in my little office. Like, that was, it was just so big. And I was, and I thought later, if that, if that person had been near me, would I have said something? Would I have done something? I would have regretted. And it was partly the response, but also as I kind of sat in the response, I felt so discouraged about myself, depressed even, you know, like, like so sick of it. See, some days, you know as well as I that even though we look back to the foundation day of Christ and we know he's died for us, he lives for us, we know that because we believe in him, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. But at the same time, the old me, the old you, is right there. And somehow the distance from our heads to our hearts is just agonizingly long. So as we often say here, let me remind you today, as I reminded myself, your sin, your uncleanness, your defilement, it's not the only true thing about you. It is a true thing about you, but it's not the only true thing. Rather, we, we learn over and over, there is forgiveness and blessings for defiled people, for people just like us, people that can't get it right, people that keep messing up, people whose hands are passing on dirtiness everywhere they go. So I'd put the offer to you again. Turn, (laughs) repent, come to God. Ask him for clean hands and a pure heart. Start over again today. Jesus died so we might be clean. He took our defilement to give us his purity. Accept it and walk in it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and are grateful for this little book of Haggai, writing to people in a far different situation than us yet, with with lessons and truths that are extremely relevant. For we too are people uh, who spread dirtiness and spread uncleanness wherever we go. And we are thankful for Christ and we pray that his blessings might come alive in our hearts and minds that we might understand them and live by them today. Help us to see it. In Christ's name, amen.